on, at, in the moment that they attacked us, um, my knees went weak. I wanted to give way. I, I, I just was, and I was in such a vulnerable space. I just wanted to give up. I was like, for, for a split second, I had this thing of, okay, that's it. This is, it's all over. I'm just going to give up. And as quickly as that split second passed, the very next second, I don't know what happened, but I found that lioness inside me like I did for Jane five years before when I went from feeling, oh, my goodness, how am I going to cope to, okay, I'm taking this on. And I started to scream and scream and fight back, but scream in a way that I don't, I've never heard my voice like that. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 89. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Talk to us about the benefits of taking a break. Feeling much better, healthier, far less stress, virtually no anxiety, sleeping well, remembering when I've written emails the previous night or WhatsApps, <laughs> it's no brain fog anymore. I, I can only see the benefits. And now I'm feeling really great. So if you want to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Now my guest today is a familiar name to many South Africans. Gabby Lowe came into the public eye back in 2015 as she fought for her daughter's life. Gabby has written a book about this extraordinary period, a book called Get Me to 21 which was the name of a campaign led by her daughter, Jenna, as she invited the public to become organ donors and to attend her 21st birthday party. Tragically, Jenna died before reaching this milestone. This is a story full of pain, but it's also full of courage. The courage of Gabby, her husband, and her other daughter, Christy, and of course of Jenna herself. It's also a story of resilience. Gabby explains how she's managed to survive a parent's worst nightmare and rebuild her life. It's a life full of purpose, which lives alongside the aching loss of her beautiful daughter. So I began by asking Gabby to introduce herself. 
So my name's Gabby, Gabby Lowe. I was born in South Africa. I live in a beautiful city called Cape Town. I know you know how beautiful it is. <laughs> <laughs> and um, biofacts, yeah, I have or had two very beautiful daughters. I've been married for 31 years. I started out in, um, well, actually, after studying, I went and traveled around the world and then was dancing and modeling and then started out in journalism. I worked for Fairlady magazine then moved across to Woolworths, which is a sort of a big retailer here, and started art in marketing. Then started my own marketing consultancy, which I ran for 18 years. And around about then is when my eldest daughter first became ill. Um, and that's when there was a massive change in my life. Of course. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So I've just read your book for the second time. <laughs> um You've written such a moving account of, of her illness in your book, which is called Get Me to 21. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes so that people can can buy it. Is it uh, available overseas? Well, it is um, through the website, jennalow.org. We can, through the website. Yeah, we can courier it. But it is also available as an audio book or on Amazon.com. There's a lovely quote from you, uh, and you say, grief and time have a weird way of entwining themselves, merging into a timeless dimension. And now that it's been seven years since you, you lost your beautiful daughter, I just wondered how, how you're managing your grief these days. I mean, does it still feel like a timeless dimension? In some ways it does. Um, I think what I meant by that is that it's the strangest thing. It can feel like yesterday since I last saw her, or it can feel like nearly seven years. And it's all a lifetime. <laughs> so it's it's really, really strange. It's um the grief now, six and a half years later, comes in waves. So there can yeah. be periods of time where I'm fine. Um obviously the grief is always with me, but it's not that crippling, crippling grief. And then every now and then something will just, you know, trigger. Yeah, trigger. It. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes in one of those waves, it's as if it was yesterday. So I think that also yeah. is what I sort of meant by a timeless dimension is that yeah. sometimes you're so close to it that you feel like you are, it's the same day as we lost her. And other times it feels like a lifetime since I last held her in my arms. So yeah, it does intertwine and it just becomes part of who you are and how your, yeah, of course. how your life plays out. And, yeah, I think you carry it with you all of the time. You never put it down. There's a section in your book where um, Jenna was getting worse and you, you felt a real shift in your role. I could kind of feel it in the book. Uh, one minute you were a fr almost a frightened observer, like we all would be, and you just wanted to curl up and cry in a corner. But then the next... Um, you, you shifted into a momcologist role. Yes. <laughs> I've never heard this phrase before, but uh, I love it, you know, and, and that's, for me, that, that was the moment that you started deciding that you were going to be more active and you were going to fight for her life, you know, rather than observe the illness take Absolutely. its course. Absolutely. And I wondered with your knowledge of resilience, which of course we'll talk about in a bit, are you better able to understand that shift and what was going on? Absolutely. So with hindsight, I can see very clearly that in the beginning, just the absolute shock of her diagnosis, of the disbelief of this, 
this cannot be happening. How is, how is it possible that my beautiful, bright, eloquent, completely healthy 16-year-old child has a very rare illness? You know, from, from where? Out of the blue. So the shock, I think it takes a, a long time for a shock like that to really sink in and for the impact of it and what it was going to mean in our lives and her lives to sink in. And in those earlier phases, I was so rocked by it that, yes, I did feel like an observer of it, like, oh, my goodness, is this actually happening? And then it started to dawn on me that actually this is an extremely realness. Most of what we need is not available. Most of what she needs in order to extend her life and to improve the quality of her life is not here in South Africa, and it's the same for many people who have families with 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 um, you know any loved one with a rare disease. All over the world, I started to discover that it's the same thing. Us mothers of children with rare diseases become what's actually well known word a momcologist. So you you start to take on the role of not just mother, but of nurse, of carer, of researcher, yeah. of everything you know i realized that if i didn't take this with both hands um she wasn't going to get what she needed and yeah. that, that was unacceptable and when i look back now yeah from the point of view of understanding what i do about resilience now that was what later on when we talk about it in our model that we co-authored on authentic resilience that was the first r which is about coming to terms with reality and actually yeah. working with the facts. Because it's so easy with a shocking diagnosis like that to go into denial, to say, oh, I don't want to see this. I'm just going I'm, yeah. I'm to pretend. Um, yeah. Or to go into drama and become completely undone by it. And in actual yeah. fact, to really be able to make a difference, to really be able to find the capacity within yourself, you've got to be dealing in fact. You've got to stay in that middle position between denial and drama where you where you live in a space that that of of realistic optimism i'm going to hold yeah. the reality in one hand and i'm going to yeah. hold hope in the other so firmly and that position is the strongest position i found yeah yeah and what a fight you had on your hands you know just reading about your you know filling in the paperwork for discovery and I've had, you know, I've experienced that on a much more uh, minor level because I had breast cancer and and I needed a drug which wasn't available, you know, and it's very, very expensive. And we had to, well, my husband did all the fighting because I was quite ill, uh, but we had to, you know, beg them for this drug and mm. uh, and to give it to us because mm. we couldn't have afforded it without our healthcare. And uh, we got it in the end up here, but wow, it, they really push us through it. Uh, so talk to us about the Get Me to 21. Uh, obviously, I've seen the lovely video of Jenna inviting us all to her party. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> Amazing idea. Was was that her idea? So it was a combined idea. So there was an, an agency called Mullen Lowe, weirdly enough, not a relation of me because <laughs> I'm low but, and spelt the same way, but not a relation. And they used to do a lot of pro bono work for um, the Organ Donor Foundation. And they had come up with this idea that felt like it needed a star to, to really invite people. Somehow they knew we had to use narrative to, to hook people into becoming organ donors. And I knew of their idea, but 
you know, it wasn't until Jen was really, really ill after all those years of fighting to get in drugs from across the world, to get expertise from across the world. And then she went on that intravenous drug for a year, which I mixed here at home every day for an hour and a half. You know, it really was outrageous. And it was only then that we realized that three years down the line, when she was on full-time oxygen, mobility scooter, that this drug was not working for her. And it was it, that was the last port of call. And what she now needed was a double lung transplant. And it was just horrific. And the the realization that dawned then was even more horrific because at the time I had thought, well, the fight to bridge her to transplant was the fight. I, I thought that she would automatically get the transplant, but it was only then when she was emergency listed that we realized that here in South Africa, which really is the home of the heart transplant, less than 2% of our population are organ donors. It's insane. You know, we have a really dire situation on our hands where every day there can be 5,000 people waiting for a life-saving organ and we don't have enough donors. So Get Me to 21 was a desperate attempt to do something to change that. Jenna was about to have her 20th birthday. It was only a year till she was going to turn 21 and she knew she wasn't going to get there if she didn't get her lungs. And so... I introduced Kirk, who ran Mullen Lowe, the creative director at the time, to Jen, and that we all sat around the table, and it was an incredible experience. And he said, here's our idea. And she said, okay, I'll do it. In her words, which are not, I don't think, in the book, but she actually said, I'll be the poster girl for death if, oh. if it makes a difference to everybody else. Because I don't think that I'm going to get my lungs in time. But I'm not going down without a fight and making a difference to everyone else. And so the video is her sitting on her bed in her room, just across the passage from me here, unable to leave the house at that stage, looking absolutely beautiful with her oxygen yeah. on. And you, know, <laughs> you realize from the video when you watch it how breathless she is because she's constantly, you know, the, the, the loud hissing noise of the oxygen in the background. But they were blown away because they gave her a script and she said, oh, no, 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 we don't need that. And she kind of put it aside and she delivered it in her words straight off the bat. I think we did three or four takes. That was it. And they brought this whole crew thinking, you know, this will be a whole day long process. But literally that was it. And it's her inviting the whole nation to her 21st birthday. And she says, all you have to do to come is become an organ donor. So that's where the name Get Me to 21 comes from. But what happened, which was extraordinary, was that for some reason, and I think because of her eloquence and the, the, the fact that she wasn't a victim, you know, the, the yeah. beautiful way. She was a fighter. It, yes, yeah. she was a fighter. It went viral, absolutely viral overnight. And this video was being shared again and again and again on Facebook, on social media. Like there were 40 million Twitter impressions. I mean, that's extraordinary. Right. And she single-handedly, from her bed, increased the organ donation rate by 287% in three months. I mean, wow. it was extraordinary. Yeah. And then as a result of that, literally three months later on the 10th of December, we got the call to say, we have found a match. You've got to get to Joburg in three hours. 
You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, and you, you were in Plet, weren't you? Christy and I were in Plet, which was the first time <laughs> I'd been away from Jen in an entire year, purely in a desperate attempt to spend some time with Christy and to get a few days rest. And that, of course, is when the call came. I mean, Murphy's Law. Yeah, but we were so organized. We had Operation O2. I had a document from here to Helen Gone with a detail of everything that had to happen as that call came. So Stu and Nurse Lizzie, the meds were all packed. And yeah, anyway, the book starts with that whole story. It was such a drama getting her to Joburg, but we did. We got her there in time. And Christy, Christy and I only just made it in time because there were no planes to be seen on the ground in George Airport because it was a massive storm. We got there in time to, to see her and say goodbye before she went in for surgery. Tribe Sober, we help people that are struggling with alcohol dependence, and I've had my own struggles. I just wanted to ask you about your relationship with alcohol, if you don't mind. And, you know, myself and so many people that I know, we would have used alcohol to help us get through this somehow, although it probably would have made it worse. Did you find yourself drinking a bit more during this uh, incredibly difficult time? So it's such an interesting question, and I, I've been thinking about it because I want to give a very honest answer, you know. Um, the, the weird thing is that during those three, three and a half years, we were so enlivened yeah. by what was going on. I don't know how to describe that to you. We were living with the potential of death every second of every day, and it was brutal, and it was beautiful. I have never felt more present in my life. Um, and I don't know how else to explain it. It's really strange. but Well, you I had to be on top of your game. And I had you, to be I mean, so on top of my game. You know, I couldn't like make this a mistake. Call you with got. No, yeah, exactly. No. I couldn't make a mistake with the mixing of the meds in the morning. So, oh. But when Jane was in ICU for six months, and we had 187 yeah. days, and they were hell, they were sheer hell. I've never seen anybody suffer like that. It was horrific. Oh, and I, I literally was at her side 12, 16 hours a day. I must admit that every single night when I got home, the first thing I wanted to do was have a glass of wine. Um, did I do it to numb? Probably. Probably. Because there were horrific, horrific visuals to try and cope with every day. Um, and it was it's so sad, isn't it, that she she got her transplant and then uh, she didn't get better. <laughs> yeah, I know it was devastating. And, you know, and it, that she went, went through so much, yeah, so much. Yeah. So I think that oh, did I use it to numb the pain sometimes, but not all of the time, because as I say, we felt so alive. Um, it was extraordinary. Yeah. People used to say, "Oh, isn't it scary to go to their house? Don't you? Doesn't it feel deathly?" and Anyone who came here would say, no, it feels the opposite. You, you won't feel more alive than when you go into that house. And I think because death was so present, we as a family grabbed life by both hands. And yeah, sure, yeah. this house was alive with emotion. It really was. It was, it was a battle station, wasn't it? It was a battle <laughs> station. So things that I did use to help me, yes, alcohol at night, but not a hell of a lot because I had to be on my game. But walking in nature was huge. And every time yeah. I went walking with my beautiful neighbors, I'd, I didn't get more than one block before bursting into tears, you know, because mm -hmm. it was out of the house was the only time I could really 
cry yeah. and, you know. And breathe. Yeah, and breathe. So walking in yeah. nature, meditation. I learned meditation for the first time when I was in hospital because I couldn't leave her side in ICU, but I had to find a way, some something. I was surrounded by, I mean, if you think about an ICU ward, nothing's more dramatic than that. And I was surrounded mm -hmm. by it all the time for six months. So meditation became an absolute lifeline. And I still, yeah. it still is. Um, yeah. So walking, meditation, and yoga, those were the things that really, really, really helped me cope. Yeah. I, I like the story about the psychologist teaching you and your family the listening meditation. Because when, when we have our workshops, the first thing we do is, you know, we'll sit around and then everybody just talks about their relationship with alcohol, you know, and, and why it's giving them a problem. And, you know, the room is so silent and the, the listening is so uh, intense and you can see it's, it's healing, you know, and it's bonding people. It's, it's just so powerful. But so for your family, you know, each of them to be able to express what they were going through, it's it, absolutely perfect for you to just to um, let the pressure off a little bit, isn't it? Like a pressure cooker, you know, absolutely. when the steam comes out, you just had to, you would have exploded, I think. Yes. And it was an, it was an extraordinary tool. And I think that you're right. I mean, there's something with the way you describe it when you sit around in your sessions, there's something about when you really listen that deepens and improves the quality of the conversation that you can have. Yeah, what also really helped us during that time is number one therapy. Each one of us had our own therapist, different therapist. On top of that, we had this person that you're talking about who came to our house every second Thursday. She was trained as a clinical psychologist, but is also an absolute guru, a teacher in meditation. And so what we would do is we'd do a family meditation led by her to start with, to just really get us to drop down into that heart space, which was just such a painful place to sit. Christy was 15 at the time, and Jenna, my eldest, was 18. And going into yourself into a quiet space when you are facing death is sure a very tough place to go. But we did it every second week. And after the meditation, she would go around the room and we would do this listening meditation where each one of us, just like you describe your relationship with alcohol, we would describe our relationship with Jenna's illness actually is what it was, where we were at in relation to Jenna's illness and as a family. And the amazing thing was every single time we were all on a different page because everybody's experience is their own experience. I was the yeah. mother battling, fighting in there, you know, at the coalface. Stuart, the dad, trying to hold it together. For him, so tough to watch me go through that as well as these two girls. And desperately yeah. trying to earn money and bring money in so yeah. that we could keep paying for all these hectic expenses. Christy, 15, she's desperate to be a free teenager and she, she can't get her head around what's going on, you know, absolutely so close to her sister and terrified. But you can imagine that for her also, you know, everything at the time, and it was, was about Jane because we were fighting for her. Yeah, And then yeah. Jen facing her own mortality. So you can imagine everybody's experience was a completely different one. And that, doing that every two weeks, taught me that. It really taught me to see that for each one of us, you might think you're in the same house battling the same thing. 
each one of us was having our own experience and just listening to what was going on for everybody else because you were not allowed to interrupt or say, Hmm. why don't you try this and what about that? Just listening gave us the ability to be empathetic to each other. Wow, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. You talk about well, when you started fundraising for, for Jenna's uh, treatment, you say, first of all, you found it a very humbling experience, but you th- you then describe it as a virtuous circle. I haven't heard that expression before. Talk to us about that. Okay, so sure, it really was a humbling experience. So for me, my, my natural way is to solve things, to find a solution, to, yeah. um, it, it's just my natural way, right? So to have to ask for help. was very hard it was very hard it was also one of the biggest learnings of my life because the first time I ever did a fundraiser and we had to because Jenna's only one of her medications was 60,000 rand a month I mean I don't know about you but I don't know many people with that amount of extra cash lying around every month after tax right and that was just one and she needed to be on triple treatment and this was a medication not even registered in South Africa, so medical aids don't have to cover it, right? And that was the the case with most of her medications. And that was the beginning. When she went on to Flowland, it was 1.2 million a year. So I needed help that we were not going to do this without help. So I didn't just want to be asking for money. So we did these beautiful, amazing events, fundraisers, where we would raise funds at the events, but we were also felt like we were giving value back. You know, people were coming and having an amazing experience from Valentine's picnics to beautiful shows at the Baxter to you name it. Anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. The important thing is I remember so well the first time that I ever hit send on those invitations. I literally put my head down on my laptop and wept. It was so humbling to have to say, please come, please help us. And what do I mean by a virtuous circle is that what is extraordinary, and I get goosebumps just thinking about it now, actually. First of all, everyone was desperate for a way to help. They'd been watching in the sidelines and were so delighted to have a way to help, right? That's the first thing. But the second thing is that that being able to ask for help also means you have to be able to receive. And giving and receiving are a virtuous circle because if I receive for me, I also am able to receive for other people. If I receive for other people, I can give. And so it goes round and round and round. And everything that we did for Jen, we were then able to pass on to other people. So out of this experience, we started to realize there were other people out there with palmy hypertension. She wasn't the only one in South Africa. And this community started to come together. And, you know, now we have a clinic at Hudeskiro for primary hypertension patients. There was nothing when really? Jenna was diagnosed, nothing. I have 480 patients in our clinic at Hudeskiro wow. Hospital. That's what I, I mean by yeah. giving and receiving our virtuous circle, because that is the yeah. giving further, further down the line, right? It's the give back. Yeah. A legacy as well. Exactly. That clinic. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Another thing that struck me in the book was that she was already quite ill, wasn't she? And But to me, she, it seemed like she was squeezing every single drop out of life. You know, the way she wanted to d- 
do her exams and study and go to matric rage. And because I remember thinking, if that was me and I was that ill, I would just want to lie in my room, you know, and be quiet. But she, uh, she really seized life, didn't she, as for as long as she could. And what really broke my heart was when uh, she went to UCT because I could see her navigating those those hills, you know, those little slopes in her little carts. I mean, it must have been so tough, but she was so brave. So hard, so hard, because by then she was not, not only was she on constant oxygen, she was on that mobility scooter, she was also on that 24-hour-a-day a pump of an infusion that went directly into her right heart chamber. So if something went wrong with that pump, she was seriously at risk. So to let her go to campus was, sure, it was a military operation. We literally had to brief, you know, the disability department. We had to brief all the security staff. We had to brief all the medical staff on campus, etc. We had to put signs all over a pump, don't stop pump. You know, it was just crazy. But that's logistics. The real heartache was how hard it was for her up there. It was yeah. so tough. And you know why? I think about it often. And I think that, look, there are many reasons. But one of the main reasons is I think that students, we're supposed to at that time of our lives feel like we're invincible. I don't know a student who doesn't think they're not invincible. You know, they jump off mountains and you know, do crazy things. They think they're invisible. They drink themselves into a stupor at night (laughs) and they believe they're invincible. And here was Jen and living a life where it was clear she's not invincible. And I think, yes, exactly, reminding them. So they found it hard to even just look at her, you know. I'm going to share a little story with you um, that I, I don't think I've told many people, but I heard this, sure, I heard this actually after she passed, out of the blue, um, someone yeah, said to me, they were sitting in a tutorial on campus and the tutor was trying to get these kids to engage. You know, there were 30 of them in the tutorial and no one's talking and he's asking questions and he was, he was exasperated. And so he put everything down, he put his books down and he said, you know what, guys, okay, I'm not getting anywhere. What inspires you? And there was a long silence. And then one young girl put up her hand and he said, she said, there's a girl here on campus on a mobility scooter with oxygen. And every single time I see her, she's got a smile from ear to ear and her hair's blowing in the wind. And I can't actually believe what I'm seeing. That inspires me. So her illness, uh, pulmonary hypertension, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes. It was relatively unknown here wasn't it in SA and she did so much to raise awareness and it also as we've talked about a bit before gave a massive boost to the organ donation situation with 20,000 new organ donors signing up in three months Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask you Gabby what's what's the situation now regarding organ donation? So I think the situation is twofold right because at the Genelo Trust we we have three objectives, but two of them are to continue to raise awareness for pulmonary hypertension because although she did a massive amount for that, it's a problem worldwide with pulmonary hypertension. It is such a rare illness that um, it's one in a million that it affects that people go undiagnosed for, for years, and that's really dangerous. So that's why awareness is so paramount 
And it's why I carry on doing what I'm doing. It's why I read, wrote the book. It's why I'm now working on a documentary, which I can also tell you about. It's why I've joined a patient empowerment committee, an international patient empowerment committee, because to get people to take breathlessness seriously is really important. So if you're breathless, don't let the doctor just say, maybe you need to lose a little bit of weight. Actually, you need to find out what the cause is. And then the second thing that we discovered was this problem with organ donation in South Africa. And it is still a problem, Janet. It is still a problem. Yes, she increased the amount of donors, but not by enough. We still have an issue. But in other countries around the world where it's not an issue, they have what we call an opt-out system. Here, we have an opt-in system. So you have to opt-in to become a donor when you're 18 years old. In other countries, you're born an organ donor. And if you don't want to be one, you opt out. And we really need to get that through Parliament. That's what actually needs to happen. And has there been efforts to get it through Parliament? I presented to Parliament when Jane was still alive. Stuart and I went and we presented to Parliament to the Health Committee. And nothing happened. I don't know how we're going to get it through, but that is what needs to happen. And in the meantime, until that happens, um, people really need to be aware to sign up. Interesting what you said about the breathlessness, because there seems to be um, so much asthma around these days. I I wonder if sometimes it's diagnosed as, oh, you've just got a bit of asthma, you know. Well, (laughs) something to help you breathe. Jane was misdiagnosed with asthma for a full six months. She was misdiagnosed. Yeah, that does happen. And also, there's an increase in pulmonary hypertension since COVID, interestingly enough. Of yeah. course. Well, that kind of figures because mm. it is a lung Exactly. Disease, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. So, so not the kind that she had, which is category one pulmonary arterial hypertension, is a, a basically they have no idea what causes it, but secondary pulmonary hypertension. So, pulmonary hypertension as a result of something, there's a massive increase in that as a result of COVID. So, I do think that, you know, people really do need to take breathlessness seriously. And then on the organ donation topic, I always just say to people, you know what? If you or a loved one was really ill and needed an organ in order to survive, would you take it? If you got offered an organ and you were and if you didn't have it, you would would you take it? And everyone always says yes. Of course. If the answer is yes, then you should be a donor. So when Jenna actually died after, it was about six months after her uh, transplant, I think, wasn't it? You know, after so much suffering you'd both gone through, but her in particular, and you were obviously distraught. And you took yourself off on a silent retreat. And I loved your story about the little bird. Tell us about the bird and Uh how that became the name for your coaching practice. Yeah, so it was about four months after she passed and sure I was in such a terrible 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 state and a very dear friend of mine said come I'm taking you away on a silent retreat and off we went for three or four days and it was a meditation retreat we did a lot of meditating but it was in silence and sure um, I did a lot of silent crying and loud crying (laughs) even though I was supposed (laughs) to be in silence yeah and the one day I just wasn't coping, so I left the meditation well and I was walking around the gardens and I went and sat at this pond and there were just trees full of weavers and I was watching them and this little male weaver came and landed on this branch right in front of me and he had his first long strand of green, 
grass or whatever it was. I actually think it was a bamboo leaf. And I watched him as he did that first little knot around the branch and he started to build this nest. And I became completely fascinated. And every break we had or every opportunity we had or whenever I just wasn't coping, I went back to that pond to my secret spot. And I carried on watching him and watching him and watching him. And he paid me no attention at all, albeit that I was only about a meter away from him. And at the end of the weekend, it was the Sunday night and we were going home that night. And I went back to the pond and he was sitting on his little nest. He'd finished it. In two and a half days, he finished that entire nest. And he was sitting on it and he was singing his little heart out and he was so proud. And I'll, I'll never forget, I remember saying out loud, that is so beautiful, my boy. And he looked at me for the first time. He looked <laughs> me straight in the eyes with his little head all cocked. And sort of, I, like, I felt like he really heard me. Yeah, I got in the car and I drove home and it just dawned on me, like, that's, that's what I have to do. I have to rebuild my nest. Rebuild. I have to rebuild my nest. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. And I don't even want to start doing it because I didn't want to start yet. And then three months later, I started my coaching course, which was an 18-month diploma. And sure, it was hard because a lot of internal work, you know, and I was very raw still. But at the end of that coaching course, what you do is you come up with your own model for coaching. And the weaver's nest was the perfect model yeah. because yeah. here we go. You know, the coaching nest became the name of my practice. It's a place where you come to be nurtured, to be looked after, to grow, to develop. And it's a place you have to fly from. And the beautiful thing about weavers is that they, they build sometimes up to 14 or 15 nests a season they wow. rebuild and they rebuild and they they architectural birds. They relearn. Every time that they build, they learn something new. So it's fascinating. And I think that's yeah. the thing is that we, that we can. We can build many nests. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. As we go through life and things happen, we have, and it's uh, in coaching, you know, we talk about deconstructing, don't we? And then we have to reconstruct. And uh, yeah, I don't don't know if you know that psychologist is, uh, but he talked about life being in um, cycles of seven years, you know, and there's the cocooning and the renewal. And that makes me think of that. Absolutely. You know, every seven years, one of the phases is um, getting ready, I think, Mm. and then go for it, build the nest. Yeah, that's that's such a lovely story. Absolutely. And imagine analogy. imagine what would happen to that little weaver if he clinged on to the one that you know, yeah. that he built and he doesn't want to let it go. That could be the one that the wife came along and said, Oh, not good enough and knocks it off. <laughs> then what? <laughs> you can't keep clinging, you have to learn to rebuild. So as you reflected on on Jenna's illness and the strength of your family getting through it all you started to think about resilience didn't you and you created your 10-step model and these days you run resilience workshops I think it's called the resilience factory isn't Mm. it another another good name you're good at names (laughs) you can tell you were in marketing (laughs) so uh, talk to us about resilience what is it so and what's your model about yeah so it's fascinating because I Shortly after Jane passed, I met an amazing woman called Pippa Shaper. 
who has been also through so much loss, she's lost two children, believe it or not, seems completely unfair, is. Um, and the two of us started having conversations around, well, what, is, what makes some people cope and other people not cope? Because I kept getting asked that question, and she keeps getting asked that question, like, how do you cope? And so we thought, okay, well, let's really start thinking about that. And so obviously I did a lot of reflection work during my coaching course over those 18 months around what we'd been through, how I'd coped, what had helped, what hadn't helped, what had worked, what hadn't worked. But then we did the same around her journey. And then we did the same around many of our, co our coachees' journeys, so clients that came to us. Then we started to read every single book we could find on resilience. And it was then actually that we said, no, 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 no. We have to create our own model because so much of what we read, we were horrified by. So if you Google resilience, what you're constantly going to come up against is that it's like bouncing back. And there's no bouncing from real trauma. No. You don't bounce. I don't imagine you felt very no. bouncy at all. There's no bouncing. You don't bounce when you're in severe trauma or challenge or difficulty. You don't bounce. You might bounce if your car has a fender bender, but you know it's you don't bounce. And you don't go back. You can't go back. You can't unsee what you've seen. You can't unexperience what you've experienced. Everything that we go through every day goes into the pot that makes up who we are. So it's nonsense. It's also nonsense to think that it's all about grit and perseverance. It's not. If you just push through, at some point, you are going to fall apart. You can't. You have to also take care of yourself. You have to rest. You have to renew. You have to reflect. You have to... So we started to build this model, and it's a 10-step roadmap, if you like, um, mm -hmm. that guides you through all sorts of challenge, any kind of challenge. And we've, we've put it through to the test with now thousands of people, and it works in any circumstance. It's just a guide that I really, really wish I'd had at the time, actually, to help you in times of challenge. And also to help you when you're not in crisis, because really yeah. they are all just life skills, just really important yeah. life skills. Yeah. So, yeah, we teach it in workshop form. We teach it as an online self-study course, which we're about to launch a membership program for. We teach it in our one-on-one -on -one coaching. So, yeah, we've got the two practices, the Resilience Factory with Pippa. We do corporate work and individual work, and then my coaching this practice, and then of course the general trust, which is all the all the advocacy work. Yeah. But you're one busy woman, huh? I am, and I can feel like um, I I can feel Jen cracking the whip if I if I don't. <laughs> so, how much have you moved the needle this year, Mum? <laughs> yeah, what you were saying there about you know the resilience, it made me think of Viktor Frankl. I'm sure you know Absolutely. his work, how he studied those people in the concentration camp. He's one of them, wasn't he? And he he tried to work out why some people survived and why others didn't. And it was the ones that had meaning and purpose in their life, wasn't it, that survived? And and all this wonderful work you're doing is, is giving you so much purpose, yeah. hasn't it, I'm sure? You know, I'm so glad you said that because I do think that's the thing that makes the big difference. It's the thing that makes yeah. so So that my coaching course was a lifeline for me because it yeah. gave me that. There was no yeah. way I was going back to marketing. That just became meaningless to me. But the coaching is my life's work. The coaching and the patient yeah. advocacy. Like, so I wake up every day 
with a sense of purpose and yeah. feeling like today matters. Today matters. Yeah. And to wake up feeling like that is just such a blessing. Especially it with yeah, it's a privilege. Yeah, it's a privilege, especially with the loss that we've had. To yeah. to to have and that's what I always say, it's this and that, right? To have that aching loss that just actually doesn't get any easier. And a real sense of purpose and knowing that today counts. That's it. Life is just, you know, it's not one thing. It's everything all at the same time. If we can go back to drinking for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one of, one of my favorite analogies about alcohol dependence is, is that it's like a warm and comforting cloak. And then when we stop drinking, you know, we feel raw and exposed as if we've taken this cloak off and we're naked and we have to somehow cope, uh, back in life in the alcohol drenched society with people, you know, forcing drinks on us and all sorts of things going on. And it struck me that resilience, learning about resilience can really help people in early sobriety. Absolutely, 100%. And I think probably not just in early sobriety, but the whole way along, because yeah, I've often thought about that, how difficult it must be to be a recovered alcoholic, because it's everywhere. And I suppose the same with an eating disorder, you know, you have to eat to survive. So that's also everywhere. How do you face your disorder all of the time? Um, but yeah, um, absolutely. Authentic resilience, which is what we call our, the kind of resilience that we teach, which is authentic resilience, the kind that lasts a lifetime. 100% would be incredibly helpful in those early stages. And of course, the drinking or if one smokes or if one takes, you know, drugs, whatever we do, those are defense mechanisms really, aren't they? To defend against mm -hmm. the loss. So, of course, when you take those away, you do feel very raw and vulnerable and exposed. But in that place, in that place, the raw, the vulnerable and exposed is where the treasure lies, actually. Yeah. It's where in the growth the, comes where from. Where the growth yeah. comes from. It's where in the darkest cave is where the treasure lies, actually. Yeah. The most, yeah. the most important treasure. So, yeah, you've probably seen that Glennon Doyle uh, talk where she says, first the pain and then the rising. I love that. Mm, mm. <laughs> okay, if we can bear to go into more trauma. Your book, you know, felt like I'd obviously been through the ringer as anyone that reads this book and travels on the journey as much as we can with you. And then you talk about this attack on the beach. <laughs> that sounds dreadful as well. Sure. It was so traumatic. Sure, it was so traumatic. It was, and interestingly enough, it was three years after Jane had passed and I was in the middle of writing my book and I was at my most vulnerable because writing the book was, oh. Bringing it all back. Oh, it was painful. It was so painful. There were times that I was writing where my body literally went back into such post-traumatic stress that it felt like I was back in the hospital and I would have to walk outside, take my shoes off, put my feet in the sand or in the grass and go, you are not in Millpark Hospital. You are sitting, writing. It's okay. Literally talk my body down. So anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. That time of writing the book was my most vulnerable time. And I've never been, um, you know, I've, I didn't want to for Christy to see my hectic morning all of the time. So sometimes I would do that very tough morning on my own. If 
But I remember that at that stage, I did sit both Stu and Christy down and say, I need you to know that I'm feeling incredibly vulnerable. Like, I feel like I'm in trouble here. That's how vulnerable I feel. And the next morning, having had that conversation, is when Stu said, come, let's go for a walk on the beach and take all the dogs. And that is the morning that we were attacked by two youths with knives. And it was the most extraordinary thing because they came at us. And what we haven't talked about at all is that Stuart has cancer. Um, and I found that out three months after, six months after Jane died. And he was in the middle of chemo at the time. So I knew that if that knife touched him, we were in serious trouble because of the risk of infection. And I just, so on, at, in the moment that they attacked us, um, my knees went weak. I wanted to give way. I, I, I just was, and I was in such a vulnerable space. I just wanted to give up. I was like, for, for a split second, I had this thing of, okay, that's it. This is, it's all over. I'm just going to give up. And as quickly as that split second passed, the very next second, I don't know what happened, but I found that lioness inside me like I did for Jane five years before when I went from feeling, oh, my goodness, how am I going to cope to, okay, I'm taking this on. And I started to scream and scream and fight back, but scream in a way that I didn't, I've never heard my voice like that. For weeks afterwards, I had no voice. And the minute I did, so did Stu. And I think these guys thought they'd come across a pair of absolute crazies. We fought and we fought and we fought literally. And they were going for me. They were going for him. They were trying to stab. I was rolling. I was in the sea. I was up. I, was up. I remember pushing this guy in the chest and telling him, if you come anywhere near me, I'll kill you. I mean, I don't know what came over me. But there was no way I was going to let him hurt Stu. And we were screaming so loud that people heard us and came running. Wow. And they chased them off. So um, for about a few days, I remember having that feeling of, are you kidding? Like, have we not had enough? Yeah, that's what I thought. Do we, not, I yeah, do we not have enough to handle? And still, we still yeah. have a lot to handle. And then I was like, Gabs, don't be a victim. Jen would be horrified with you. You're not a victim. This doesn't get handed out in neat little parcels of, oh, okay, they've had their fair share. Let's give this to someone else. Life doesn't work like that. Yeah. Let's look at how can I look at this differently? And in that moment, I sort of realized, um, actually, that was a gift because I was at my most vulnerable. I thought that I'd lost my fight. And here was an opportunity, my goodness, to scream at the universe, to let out rage like I have never felt, to fight, to realize I still had it in me to fight, and to realize that I wanted to live. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why I always say that the key to our courage lies in our most vulnerable moment. When we are at our most vulnerable, that is the key to our courage action welcome it yeah 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 i think that's uh 
when, when we reach out for help with our addiction, that's that's a moment of courage and we have to be vulnerable in order to ask for help. And that's the hardest part for so many people. You know, for me, it, it took me 10 years to do that. But once I'd done that and got help and got connection, then I was able to get better. Then it's just a matter of finding how to do it and getting the tools. Exactly. But until you... Gosh. Until you make yourself vulnerable, you, you just don't progress. And there's no act yeah. of courage that doesn't include vulnerability. Because it's not courageous if you don't feel vulnerable doing it. Then it's not courageous. Yeah. Yeah. Good <laughs> you point. Know, risk. Yeah. Risk, uncertainty, yeah. and emotional exposure. Those are the, the three things that make up courage. So there is no yeah. courage without vulnerability. Yeah. Wow. Well, you said the word lioness. I think that's what I'd use to describe you. Oh. <laughs> uh, so can I ask about the rest of your family? How's your husband? Is he uh, yes. recovering well? Yeah. So he, he has bone marrow cancer. So um, I don't think recover completely is an option, but well, not yet. Who knows? Um, anything could happen. But he is doing incredibly well. He's been on chemo for six years on and off. He's just finished some radiation and he's going back onto chemo. But I, you've never met a more positive and astoundingly sort of courageous man. He literally takes it in his stride. I mean, it, it seems bizarre, but he does. And he says, this is nothing compared to what Jane went through. And uh, he just takes it in his stride. So his business is going well. He's working. Christy went through whew, years of terrible, terrible, terrible depression. Um. And now I can tell you with my hand on my heart and so much joy in it that she's in such a great space. She has. Well, she's a rock star, isn't she? A rock star. <laughs> she has started singing again. She stopped singing for four years. She started again. She finished her degree. She's in love with a lovely guy. She is rocking it. She's singing full time. But more than that, she's found herself. You know, she's, she's really done some very big internal work. Um, she's off any kind of antidepressants or anything, and it is fantastic to see. Um, yeah, she's in a really good space and able to help other people. Yeah, yeah. Mm. She's going to turn into such an amazing lady, I mm. think, isn't she? Mm. She'll watch her with yeah, interest. Exactly, exactly. So there'll be so many people listening to this who will be totally inspired by you, I'm sure, and, and they'll want to help. How, how can they best honour Jenna's memory? Oh, that would just be amazing because we do. We, we started a not-for-profit organisation after she passed called the Jenna Lowe Trust, and we have this clinic at Curtis Cure, and it's all state patients. So I'm constantly trying to raise funds for oxygen machines and for medication and for mobility scooters and for extra additional nurses. So, yeah, donations are more than welcome. Um, and it's www.jennalowe, and it's spelled L-O-W-E dot org is our website. So you can donate there or um, buying a copy of my book, you know, 10% of those funds go to the trust as well. And listening to the book. And then I'm launching a documentary soon um, called Get Me to 21, The Jenna Lowe Story. And hoping to get it onto Netflix. Um, yeah, because I really just want to increase the amount of awareness of this disease so that other people get diagnosed earlier. That's It's a, yeah. it's a huge driver for me. People have to get diagnosed yeah. earlier. So Authentic Resilience, is that available online now? For, I'm just thinking about our overseas listeners 100%. so they can find that. 
they can get that. So they can Google authenticresilience.com and our course will come up or they can Google the resiliencefactory.com and our course will come up in, in many different ways. And we also do host workshops on Zoom. But very excitingly, we're doing two live workshops soon. Can I tell you about those? Mm. Yeah, because that's very exciting. We haven't had a live workshop for two years. So it's very exciting. What, you mean people, people in a room? In a room together. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> How oh, so wonderful. <laughs> so we've got one on Friday, the 4th of March, just up the road here at Old Mutual House in Bishop's Court Village. Um, and then we've got one in Johannesburg on Saturday, the 7th of May. And it's a full day workshop with delicious food and teas and coffees and water because, you know, one has to have deliciousness as well while we're busy learning. And then we take you through the whole model and teach you the skills and the tools and the secrets. And there's a whole workbook. And yeah, it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. So if anyone's interested, then they must just email me at info at the resiliencefactory.com. Okay, I'll make sure it's all in the show notes. Okay, well, it's been an inspiring uh, moment for me talking to you, uh, Gabby, after hearing so much about you and watching you from afar. So um, thank you. And anything that we haven't talked about that you think uh, you, that you'd like to mention? Well, I just wanted to say thank you, actually, and to acknowledge that it's very inspiring for me to meet you too because I think that overcoming addiction is huge and it's something – just like grief never leaves you, neither does addiction ever leave you. It's something you learn to live with. So I think that the two are, uh, there are lots of parallels, lots of parallels. And I think that if we can just keep literally tracking down moments of joy and making yes. sure, making sure that we do that every day, track them down. What brings you joy? Yeah. If it's swimming in the ocean, go and do it. If it's Listening to a bird sing, do it. You know, what are those things that make your heart sing? And find them. Go out there and find yeah. them. Thank you so much, Gabby. What a truly inspiring woman you are. Let's highlight some points from that conversation. As Gabby described the heartbreaking development of Jenna's illness, we discussed the moment when Gabby felt her role shift from that of a hopeless observer who just wanted to cry to that of a momcologist who was determined to fight on her daughter's behalf. She discovered the lioness inside. A lioness which kept on fighting with Jenna all the way and then re-emerged during that terrifying beach attack three years later. She found it very humbling to ask for help and talked about how activating her very first fundraiser left her in tears. But then it led her to reflect on the virtuous circle as she discovered that everyone was in fact desperate to find a way to help and they were so grateful to be able to do something practical. So she learned how to receive, which then led to the virtuous circle of giving and receiving, giving and receiving. And she realized that everything they were doing for Jenna helped others as well. And one of Jenna's legacies is a clinic in the public hospital here in Cape Town. Gabby explained that in spite of Jen's campaign dramatically increasing the number of organ donations, South Africa is still in dire need. It's ironic that only 2% of the population are organ donors when we think of Cape Town as being the home of the first ever heart transplant. 
The problem is that South Africa has an opt-in organ donation program, whereas in some countries everyone is born an organ donor and they have to opt out. Many more lives are saved in those countries with an opt-out policy. So Gabby continues to fight for a change in South African legislation. Pulmonary hypertension often goes undiagnosed. And in fact, Jenna herself was diagnosed as having asthma during the first six months of her illness. Gabby stressed that breathlessness is a symptom that must be taken seriously. I asked Gabby if she used alcohol during this period, but she explained that her momcologist duties were so complex that she had to be on top of her game 24-7, so she simply could not risk it. Her coping mechanisms were walking in nature, meditation and yoga. She told us about the listening meditation that the whole family did every couple of weeks, simply expressing how they were or were not coping with Jenna's illness and Jenna herself was part of these sessions. This made me reflect on the shares that we do at the beginning of our workshops. Everyone introduces themselves and talks about their relationship with alcohol. Nobody comments, so it truly is a listening meditation. And it often strikes me that sometimes this is the first time that some people have expressed this out loud. It's always an emotional session but it's also very bonding as people realize they're not alone in this. Gabby and I agreed that deep listening has an effect on the quality of the conversation, which in fact is the essence of coaching. A few months after Jenna's death, Gabby was in a very dark place. A friend took her off to a silent retreat, where she did a lot of crying, silently and not so silently. But every day she would go to a place in the grounds where she would observe a weaver building his nest. She watched him complete his nest and it occurred to her that although she didn't feel like it, she really would have to eventually rebuild her own nest. Apparently weavers built several nests in their lifetime, which of course got us thinking about the fact that we may need to rebuild our lives after trauma or at certain periods in our life. The empty nest syndrome, of course, springs to mind. We just can't cling on to that old life, however much we may want to. This got me thinking about Hudson's cycle of renewal, which we often use in coaching. Your life may be going along quite nicely for a few years, and then a curved ball will come along. Just think of COVID, which has been a curved ball for most of us. Now, Hudson maintains that at certain periods in our life, we find ourselves in the doldrums. We feel a bit depressed, a bit stuck, uninspired and powerless. For example, we may know we're drinking too much, but we've got no idea how to make a change. We're in the doldrums. The next stage is cocooning, and that's when we start to connect with our inner strengths being curious and educating ourselves via podcasts and quitlet is a form of cocooning. Getting ready is the next stage where we prepare for the transition by reaching out and connecting with others on the same path. And going for it is when we make a start, when we change our thinking about drinking and start making the changes that we need to. In early sobriety, many people experience a bit of a low, what some would describe as a void. The old drinking life has gone and they've got no idea what to replace it with. 
And that's where our nest building analogy comes in again. We have to discover new connections, new interests, and quite simply rebuild our nest. We've entered a period of renewal, a very positive period, which can lead to more health and more happiness if we stick with it. One of the most common questions that Gabby gets asked is, how do you cope? So she reflected long and hard about this and started to think about resilience. She thought about her own journey and that of other bereaved parents that she knew, and she did a lot of reading about resilience. She actually disagreed strongly with most of the literature on resilience, which talked about bouncing back or pushing through with grit and perseverance. In her experience, that is not at all the right way to deal with trauma. So with her colleague, Pippa Shaper, Gabby began to create her own model of resilience, a 10-step model, a roadmap, something she wishes she'd had in her darkest days. The first part of the model is about simply accepting the facts and operating from a place of realistic optimism. This model can be used for any life change. For example, if you've been using alcohol to numb your pain or just to cope with life, then you will struggle in early sobriety. Studying authentic resilience will not only give you a tangible goal, but it will enable you to learn how to actually thrive in your alcohol-free life. We both agreed that the hardest thing of all is to reach out for help. Whether it's help fighting for your child's life or help to change your alcohol dependence, it's a humbling experience. We will feel vulnerable, but it's not an act of courage if you don't feel vulnerable. So if this conversation has inspired you, then please read Gabby's amazing book, Get Me to 21. You can get it from the website genalo.org. I'll put it in the show notes. You can also help by making a donation. And to learn more about Gabby's courses about resilience, go to theresiliencefactory.com. Again, I'll put that in the show notes. And if you're in South Africa, you heard Gabby explaining that there would be a physical Cape Town workshop on authentic resilience on the 4th of March and another one in Joburg on the 7th of May. Tickets are available from Quickit or drop Gabby a mail at info at theresiliencefactory.com. So let me finish with a message from one of our members, Mapumi. What is so strange about my cravings is that they always happen when everything is going well and I'm feeling great and comfortable in sobriety. Then that old nagging voice will say, well done for being so good. Now have a glass of wine to celebrate. You deserve it. What a load of bullshit it all is. So when I had some unexpected cravings over the weekend, I doubled up on connection and reading some quick lit to reinforce and strengthen my sobriety. I didn't drink and I won't drink. I started the week feeling great and positive about the week ahead. So well done, Mapumi. Yes, it's amazing how sometimes we'll get a craving when everything's going great. We're so used to using alcohol for celebrating as well as for coping with difficult times. We've used it for pretty much everything for years, so I guess it's going to stick. So well done for recognizing that craving for what it is and being able to resist it. If you'd like a copy of our PDF called 30 Signs You May Have a Problem with Alcohol, just email janet at tribesober.com. 
Now, we're already getting sign-ups for our Sober Spring Challenge, which starts on the 20th of March. 66 alcohol-free days, supported by daily emails and 66 mini-podcasts. It's great fun as we put everyone on the Sober Spring bus on day one, and they all travel through the 66 alcohol-free days together. There's always a great vibe on that bus as everyone encourages and supports each other. So don't miss the bus. Sign up today. Just go to tribesober.com and click on Sober Spring 2022. And if it's not spring where you are, then just sign up for Sober Autumn. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. And we'd be so grateful if you'll leave us a review. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.